Mark 9, starting at verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he had a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. Verse 20. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that the crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. And thank you, Lord, for uh, the gospel of Mark. I thank you for uh, the urgency and the beauty and the clarity and all of the things that made Mark Mark and Peter Peter that you used to write this word. I thank you that it is not by the hand of Mark alone, not by the memory of Peter alone, but as your spirit brought to mind everything for Peter and inspired the hand of Mark to write that we are given your sure and true and trustworthy word. I pray, Lord, that you would give us hearts of faith. I pray you would help us to depend on you in all things. Lord, I know that we are dependent upon you. I pray, Lord, you would help us to be those who live as is true. And we would depend on you fully by faith. We pray that you would do this this morning, that you would work in this now, Father, that you would use your spirit in our hearts for your purposes, for your glory, that your name would be praised by us, by generations to come, should you tarry until the end of time, that we would then forever proclaim your name rightly together. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.
Mark 14, or rather Mark 9, 14 through 29, we have uh, this account of Christ healing a young boy who is possessed by a demon, uh, who is also possibly ill. Uh, but we would see from the text that it is fairly clear this is the work of a demon, not just illness. Uh, and we see Jesus healing and having compassion on him. But within that, we see a lot about faith and the importance of faith and how faith works and where faith needs to be placed. I don't, I don't know about you. I often am thankful uh, that we are saved by faith alone, uh, that grace, the grace of God alone has given faith that saves us and it is just a dependence upon God that we are saved because I am often wearied by how weak my faith is. Often just physically, I'm aware of how frail I am. Like all people, the older I get, the more I become aware of that. But it is a great comfort to trust and to know that we can fully depend on Christ and that he is clear with us and knowing we must do so. And that's what we'll see in this section today. While often in our lives we might come to places where we think, I could just conquer the world right now. Right? You go to a, a conference or you have great fellowship, great time in the Word, great time with other people. Maybe as a youth you go to a junior, a, a junior high camp, whatever that is. A junior high camp, a high school camp. You come down the mountain and you feel like, man, it's like I saw Jesus' face glowing I could do anything right now. Now we know from Mark 1, uh, 9, 1 through 13, uh, that was not necessarily the case for James and John and Peter as they came down the mountain uh, because they did, if you're missing the context of what's happened, they did see Jesus' face and his clothing and all of him glowing. Jesus displaying a radiant light in which all three gospel, uh, the, uh, all three authors of the synoptic gospel seek to describe and all fall short of words to describe how overwhelming it was to see Christ there. And Peter and James and John don't fall into this kind of high, like, let's do this, we can do anything. They're actually confused. Uh, they are overwhelmed by who they are because they've seen God in the flesh. They're, they're not living on a, a hype of we can do anything. They're feeling very dependent upon Christ. Right? Remember, as they're walking down the mountain, Jesus says that he will die and rise again. And they don't ask him about it, but they look at one another thinking, what does he mean by that? They're confused. When they get to the bottom of the mountain here in verse 14, we see that the other disciples are not in any greater state. They're also confused. They're frustrated. Uh, they're in the middle of arguments with the scribes. And so we have this scene coming on as Jesus is coming down the mountain after the transfiguration. Jesus has been transfigured before him, were transformed, displayed, all of his glory revealed to them. And now coming down the mountain to the other nine disciples, we find those disciples at the bottom of the mountain with a great crowd around them in the middle of an argument. That's the scene Jesus is now walking into. So let's look then at the text, not just the context, but the text, the arguments with the critics and the amazement of the crowd. Looking at verse 14, you see, and when he came to the disciples, the disciples being 
the 12, and in this case, the nine, because James, John, and Peter are with him. Now he comes down to the disciples. The other nine are there. And how does he find the disciples? They saw a great crowd around them. So they are surrounded by people. There's a huge crowd, and the scribes are arguing with them. You might remember who the scribes are. As we looked at the Gospel of Mark, or as you're a good student of the Bible, uh, you're aware the scribes are religious leaders. They would be of various sects, not sexes, sects. They would all be men. Uh, and they are all men who study the Word of God, copy the Word of God. They are authorities on the law of God. So some scribes would be Pharisees. There would be scribes of the Pharisees, those men charged with that particular work. Uh, likely that's the case here. But these scribes are there, and they're arguing with him. This is not the first time we've seen the critics of Jesus, the scribes and the Pharisees, arguing. And if you look back to Mark 3, you see the scribes arguing with Jesus about this particular issue, casting out demons. And if you remember from chapter 3, the scribes aren't arguing that Jesus can't cast out demons because they can't deny that. They've seen it happen again and again and again. What the scribes are arguing in chapter 3 of Mark is that Jesus cast out demons by Beelzebub. He says, by Satan, you are casting out demons. And, and Jesus goes on to proclaim how stupid their argument is and how foolish they are to think such things and how they are moving in a dangerous place if they are going to blaspheme against the spirit who is the power in which demons are cast out. I encourage you, if you're not familiar with that story, you could go on to the podcast. You could go back and listen to it. You could read in your Bible, get a good study Bible, and go there. But those are the scribes, same group of people, arguing with Jesus. And so you can imagine, as Jesus comes down the mountain, the scribes are arguing with his disciples. The scribes are feeling like, this is going well. Right? Jesus' disciples, who have previously been given the authority to cast out demons, have this young boy that has come to him, them with his father, and they are not able to cast it out. That's what we hear in the story, right? And now the scribes are there, and what are the scribes doing? They're arguing. It doesn't tell us what they're arguing about, but it's very likely this is the topic of which is being argued about. The scribes who said Jesus must cast out demons by Satan are now here, Jesus' disciples, and they're super encouraged, go, oh, where's your Jesus now? How come you can't cast this one out? They're rejoicing over this. They're arguing and debating with maybe many other issues, but at the very least we know this is going on. These same scribes who would be the critics and the accusers of Jesus hope and find a moment that they now are winning. Not only the critics, but we also see, as we've seen through the whole gospel, the critics and the crowd. Look at verse 15. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. They ran to him. They see him. They're amazed. Not only the arguments of the critics, but the amazement of the crowd. When they, when they see Jesus, that's who they want to see. That's where they're going. That's who they want to greet. Right? Maybe in, in your time on earth, you've seen celebrities. I remember a few times in my life, I'm not going to recount them because I really don't care about celebrities and I don't want that to be the only story you remember from Sunday. But you've probably seen times where there's a celebrity 
and there's a crowd, or maybe you don't know who the celebrity is, but you see a crowd gathered around, and there's their disciples or bodyguards waiting there, standing, and everyone's kind of, and you just walk by and you're like, what's going on over there? Who is it? What, what, what are we seeing? And then when that person walks in, what does the crowd do? They're screaming, they're yelling, they're excited, they're pushing in, they're trying to get to him because they're not there for the people that are with him. They're there for him or her. It's all about the celebrity. And we see the crowds treating Jesus in this way. The crowds at times, maybe many of them are called disciples, but often it is apparent that the crowds are just amazed by what he's doing. They're just fascinated by what's going on. Many are coming like this man because they have real problems. Sin and Satan are real and they feel the weight of that and they're coming to Christ because of that. Whether they know who he is or not, they want some way out of their problems. And then others who just want to marvel at what's going on. And so as Jesus comes down the mountain and they see him, they're not standing there still with the disciples. They turn and they're running to him and they're amazed and they're greeting him. There's great fanfare going on. They're all excited and Jesus is the celebrity. And so they're there to see him. The crowds are dazzled. The scribes are denying and Christ is direct. Look at verse 16. And he asked them, What are you arguing about with them? He makes a clear statement to them. What are you arguing to about with them? The language in the Greek is the same as the English. We don't don't know who the them is. Who exactly is he asking? It appears the scribes nor the disciples wanted to be the them. Because when Jesus says, what are you arguing about with them? The scribes don't answer. And the disciples don't answer. They're silent. They want to avoid who the them is as much as we see and don't know who the them is. They don't want to answer Jesus. But one man does from the crowd. If you look with me at verses 17 through 23, and you can see in your handout, a concerned and confused father. Jesus asks, what are you arguing about with them? And as the scribes and the disciples remain quiet, one from the crowd cries out, verse 17, someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I've brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? And how long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. A concerned father who is confused. He has brought his son to Jesus, whom he's heard, heard, he heard it, that he's healing. He brings his son there, and he's hoping that this will be about, and what happens? Nothing. Now, the men who he was hoping would do this, they're arguing with the scribes. Nothing's going on. He's concerned. He's confused. He's uh, likely frustrated or maybe just feels completely broken at this point as he has this idea of hope and he's coming and waiting and longing that God's going to do something, that these men could do something that finally what has plagued him since his son was a child might go away. And nothing. 
frustrated, confused. They were not able. And Jesus is clear and compassionate. Verse 18, or rather, sorry, a little bit halfway through verse 18. I'll just start at the beginning. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth, his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked disciples, your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Christ then clearly answers, If you can, all things are possible. For one who believes. We see the confused and frustrated father. He makes clear what's going on. We see Jesus' directness, both with the disciples and the man. As the man states, your disciples are not able. What does Jesus say? Oh, faithless generation, how long will I bear with you? How long must I bring him to me? What's Jesus doing? He is being brutally honest with the disciples and all else who were there. He's not saying, it's okay, guys. You tried really hard. You did your best. What's most important is your self-confidence as a disciple. If you don't have self-confidence, you can't accomplish anything. Guys, you just need to believe in yourself. No. He says, oh, faithless generation, how long am I going to bear with you? How long do, am I going to be with you? These, these are the cries of the Old Testament again and again to God's people. How long will this go on? How long must I bear? How long must I forbear as you just dwell in sin? Oh, faithless generation, those who have heard and those who have known and those who just linger, unwilling to depend on God. Again and again, God cries this out to his people that they are adulterous, that they are faithless. Jesus is very clear with the state of his people if they do not live dependent upon him. He makes clear what the problem is. The problem is they are faithless. They do not rest their hope in God. We'll get to it even more so with the disciples later. But you see that Jesus makes clear what the problem is and what the solution is. Right? He says, O faithless generation, bring him to me. Bring the boy to me. The scribes are about to shut their mouths. There will be no more arguments, no more debate, no more discussion. What is not possible for man will be accomplished in Christ. And Christ in compassion doesn't say, if you guys can't have the faith to do this, I'm not doing it. He doesn't stop with just calling them to repentance and helping them to recognize where they are, that they are faithless. 
He says, bring him to me. And then in compassion, he communicates with the Father, right? Like a faithful bedside manner. Jesus is not just peddling things, but he compassionately cares for this man. And maybe even wanting the crowd to hear the severity of what is going on. He asks the man, how long has this been going on? He says, from childhood. And this isn't just he has epileptic seizures. He's thrown into the water. He's thrown into the fire. This is a demon functioning in this child who is trying to kill him. Who wants to destroy him. Who has made this man and the life of his son what feels like unbearable. Overwhelming. Again and again, pushing him, trying to bring him to the point of death as it is Satan's desire to lie and cheat and steal and murder. And the demons have the same agenda. And the boy is thrown as he even sees Christ. The, the demon sees Christ and what does it do as we have seen throughout the gospel and we see in the other gospels, he recognizes who Jesus is. And he takes one last ditch effort. He goes at the boy full bore. And Jesus, in compassion, casts him out. But in compassion, he also makes clear to the Father, not God the Father, the Father of this boy, how he will do this, and who will do this, and who is able. Listen to the words of the father. He says and asks him, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And you can understand his frustration as he's come to the disciples. He's thinking this is just their leader. Maybe, maybe he can do something. Maybe he can't. The disciples couldn't do anything. What makes us think he can? And Jesus makes clear. He says, if you can, if Jesus can, he says, all things are possible for the one who believes. The statement is directly asking if Jesus is able to do this. And Jesus' statement is very clear. He can. All things are possible for the one who believes, the one who depends, the one whose trust is completely in God. Which Christ, as a man, is. He could do all things because he is fully in the hope of the Father. And for us, it is a dependence upon Christ. He makes clear to him, it is not a matter if Christ can do this or not. He can do as he wills. You must depend upon him. The man is questioning the ability of Christ. And Christ is making very clear. There is no question whether or not I can do this. You must depend. And it's not even clear that Jesus does this solely as a response to the Father's statement. But we see his statement in verse 24. Immediately the father of the child cried out and he says, I believe, help my unbelief. What is he saying? In, in a weak faith, he cries out, I believe, help my unbelief. 
We see an anemic faith, verses 24 through 29. The faith of the father is a father in distress. His faith is anemic. It is weak. It is little. And we hear these statements, and when he says, I believe, help my unbelief, we see these as contrary statements, right? We say, well, which one is it? But praise God, those statements don't, by nature, have to contradict. They express, actually, the truth of every human heart whose hope is in Christ. Let me be clear. John Calvin said it this way. He said, these two statements may appear to contradict each other, but there is none of us that does not experience both of them in himself. As our faith is never perfect, it follows that we are always partially unbelievers. But God forgives us and exercises such forbearance toward us as to reckon us believers on account of a small portion of faith. It is our duty in the meantime, carefully to shake off the remains of infidelity, which adhere to us to strive against them and to pray to God to correct them. And as often as we are engaged in this conflict, to fly to him for aid. Jesus isn't making a statement that, that the man has to have greater faith. He's making a statement that his faith must be placed in Christ. He states clearly that he is able to do it. But he must believe. And belief is not a generic thing. Faith, belief, trust, dependence are all rooted in that same word. The, the Greek word, the root of the Greek word is pistos. It is to believe. We see it translated as belief and faith, trust and dependence. All rooted in that, that same word. And that type of faith is not the kind of generic faith we talk about as a society. Where people say, you, you just got to have faith. You just got to believe. Well, you just got to have faith and believe in what? What is it that your faith and belief is in? What is it that you're longing for? See, Jesus isn't telling him, you just got to believe that your son will be healed. If you believed your son would be healed, he would be healed. That's the power of belief, the power of faith. Now, that's not what Jesus is arguing with the man. He says, if you are able to. The man doesn't believe there is some power hidden within that's able to do this. His question is, can Christ do this? And Jesus' answer is, yes, put your faith in me. Trust me. There is an object to faith. There is someone who must be believed in, who must be trusted, who must, you must be dependent upon. It is not a generic faith. We talk of faith and we replace the word faith with optimism. You just have to be optimistic about it. If you're optimistic about it, you can change the world. It's how we find ourselves in the middle of things like self-confidence is the biggest problem of man. Our biggest problem is we're insecure, and if we could just have confidence in things, we would be able to accomplish them. Now, if you could just have confidence in things, you'd be able to put a big show on. Until there came a moment with your confidence, you couldn't accomplish it. And Jesus is up on the mountain with Peter, James, and John, and you're down here arguing with the scribes going, Power on! What is happening here? What's going on? 
He told us we could do this. I can't do it. Do you guys remember how we did it? What was it that we did? You guys were out two by two. How did you do it? Try what you were doing. The father is frustrated because he doesn't know where to put his belief. And Christ makes clear where his belief must be. And the disciples are frustrated because they're not getting the pragmatic solution they want. Look at the, the last verse in verse 27, uh, rather, in verse 28. When he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Your translation might include the words prayer and fasting. Uh, if it's a faithful translation, it'll include a note there also that states that and fasting was added at some point in history uh, because the earliest manuscripts of which we have, not, none of which include fasting. It's not because fasting is an unbiblical thing, uh, but it was not in the original text. The original text read, and prayer. Uh, probably at some point fasting was added in by someone hoping that they were making clear what should be done there and thinking that what Jesus meant by prayer is that you have to do the work of prayer and fasting in order to accomplish this. As is consistent doctrinal teaching of the Catholic Church and many others. But if you work in faith, you will accomplish things. It is your work that will make it happen. You work for it. And that way you can be saved because your work. Because you're not saved by faith alone, but you're saved by faith and works. Your works have to match up. But in the original writing, it seems very clear from history, uh, what is included here is not prayer and fasting, but prayer. A complete dependence upon God. Prayer is the time of dependence. I'm thankful for my wife and that she often reminds me of this. As I'm frustrated and talking through things and uh, coming to a place where I feel overwhelmed that things are too much and I don't know what I'm going to do. And she'll say to me, can, can you just pray? Well, that makes sense. Prayer is the time when you are stopped and you are completely recognizing dependent upon your father. You're recognizing I, I have nothing. It's not here, but soon we'll get into a childlike faith. And what is a childlike faith? It's a completely dependent faith. A child can do nothing. They are needy and dependent. I love it when my children feel like, I don't need you, I'll do this. Okay. Let's go drop you off somewhere. Make a life for yourself, seven-year-old. No. No, friend. You are completely dependent. You've never paid for anything in your life. Everything you think you've paid for, I gave you the money to pay for it. You've never made a meal in your life. Your mother has made everything you've ever eaten or we've paid someone else to make it for you. You are a child. You are fully dependent. And prayer puts us in that place. It is both relational, prayer matters, and that we have relationship with God. If, if you feel like, oh, I have a relationship with God, and you only, God, you only go to God in prayer of supplication. You only go to say, I'm needy and I'm dependent, and now I'm going to pray to you to get what I want. You don't believe in God. You believe in a magic genie who lives in the sky to deliver you whenever you want something. Prayer is not merely supplication. 
We see in Jesus' prayer, it is adoration, that he adores the Father, that he thanks the Father. It is supplication, it is request, it is exaltation, it is making all things known that they are his and belong to him in both our needs and our very existence. And so when the disciples come and they say, hey, what were we doing wrong? Right? I don't know, maybe the disciples were looking for some kind of ancient five-step pamphlet. Like, what are the wrong steps we're taking? Can you clear up the steps for us? Because these guys over here said it's these five steps, and these guys saying it's these five steps, and we've tried 150 steps, and we got nothing. He says, no. You need to depend. He says, this kind, this kind of brutality... This kind of evil of Satan is dependent. You you must pray. You must be dependent. To the very disciples who he is also empowered to have such ability. He says, you must do this dependently. The faithfulness of Christ to make clear throughout that it is only Christ who saves. To the scribes, who challenges disciples to the disciples who sought to do something in their own strength, to the Father who comes confused about what's going to happen, and to everyone there in the crowd, that it is only by Christ a faithless generation will accomplish nothing. They will not be able to. We see Jesus teaching very similar in John 6, 28 through 29. He says, and they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe, you depend, you trust, you put your faith in him whom he has sent. In John 6, it's a very different situation. This is after the feeding of the 5,000. And you have all of these Jews coming to Jesus and they're saying, hey, feed us again. Like what you did the other day, that was great. Do it again. Feed us again. And Jesus states their faithlessness and says, you're coming to me because you want food. He says, you want to not thirst and not hunger? Believe in God. Put your hope in him. And what do they do? They take Jesus's words and they twist them. And they go, oh, you want us to believe in you? (laughs) Have you read the Old Testament? You remember Moses? Well, maybe they would just say the Testament. We say old. Anyway, unimportant. Have you read the scriptures of Moses? Do you know how Moses showed the people that God, God was in him? He fed them man in the wilderness. Maybe he could do something like that. Completely missed the point. Why? Because they're after what they want. Their faith is in the bread. Their faith is in what they desire. And they're trying to use faith as manipulation to get what they want. They're saying, you've done this for other people. Why don't you do it for me too? You've given this. They're they're debating with Christ, not depending on him. Because their bellies were filled and they liked that feeling. It's not a hope of faith. It's a needy dependency of man. And they're guising it in some kind of belief or hope in Christ to try to get what they want. 
So what do you do? What do you do when your faith is weak? When you're like the disciples who see the work of God before you and you feel like, I can't do this. How do I do it? Maybe you're like the man and confused and frustrated by all the things going on in life. You feel like, I have no solution to this. Somebody do something. What do you do when your faith is confused? Well, I think what you need to do is rest on what your faith is. You depend on him. You pray to him. As Jesus said to the disciples, you pray, you depend, you cry out to him. And as he has always been, remember, all of these people are crying out to them. Jesus didn't stand there silently. He acted in the providence of God and faithfulness to accomplish, to make clear to them their sin, their inability to trust him, their sense of omission, their sense of commission, who they are and their need to depend on him. He made clear to the confused that you are doubting the one who is able to do all things. Make clear where your faith is being put. Don't just come here with a hope that your son could be healed. Put your hope in Christ. And he continues to speak. Christian, how are you going to combat the lies about faith? How are you going to combat when you start to believe that your faith is merely an optimism token that you can go to the great genie of God and cash in to get what you want? When the lies that are spewed from both the false wolves of the church and the world telling you that your life is about confidence, your life is about believing and being optimistic, and if you do, you can get everything you want. It's an easy sell to a bunch of rich people who can get what they want when they want, who can sacrifice one luxury to grab another luxury. It is a lot harder of a sell to a man who has a child who's been tormented from birth. He is frustrated, and he is tired, and he is confused, and he is looking for hope. And he comes to one who he hears can help. And I pray what he found was not just temporary help, but eternal. And the kindness of Christ to say to this young boy, as he cast out the demon, he says, be gone, you deaf and mute spirit, never to return. He just doesn't say that every time he casts out a demon. And we also see in the Gospels, he states that there are times where a demon leaves someone and what happens? Because there's no hope, there's no belief, there's no dependence. They're just a waiting victim. And he says seven demons come back that are just the worst. Maybe that's the demoniac. Maybe again and again as we saw that demoniac becoming a man who at this point is completely cast out earlier in Mark. But Jesus in grace and compassion says, never again, never enter. Just by his words, that young boy was forever freed from that demon. Those same words powerfully make clear our faith. If you look under application, I, I want to remind you of a few things about your faith. If your faith is in Christ, it is a faith delivered to you. It is a gift. It's not something you earned. It's not something you did. Yes, I understand in the timing of it, you might think, no, I, I was there. Somebody said, if you want to put your hope in Christ, raise your hand. I raised my hand. I walked down the aisle. 
I chose faith. I did this. I got saved. Friend, unfortunately, many people have done such, and you know them. And what happened to them that day was not salvation. They raised their hand, they walked down an aisle, they said a prayer, maybe a couple things in their life changed, and then they took off running for hell. Their hope's not in Christ. For many, what happens in those moments is exactly what happens at any moment that anyone is saved. The power of God regenerates a heart to depend and trust in Christ. That's what Titus 3 says. That but God, because of his grace and mercy, has transformed us to be those who long to obey him. And it's exactly what Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 describes. After Ephesians 2, 1 and on make clear our current state of sin, that we have no hope in God, we see a shift at verse 5. But God, because of the great mercy with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, has caused us to be alive in Christ. In verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Faith is more than an intellectual belief of something, but it is a belief, a trust, a full dependence upon God. And it is not something you can muster up on your own. It's not something you can create. Faith is a gift given that you would fully do what you were previously unable to do. Believe not only that there is a God, because even the demons believe and shudder. Any man who says he doesn't believe there is a God is lying and denying the evidence all around him in creation. Romans 1 makes clear, spoiler alert, no matter if you're an atheist or an agnostic or anything else, you know there is a God. Creation declares it. A, a simple assent to belief that there is a God does not equal salvation. It is the mere result of creation. You know there is a God. That knowledge doesn't save you. It actually condemns you. Because you know there is a God and you have chosen to live in rebellion against that God. Theism is not salvation. Theism is the natural state of a created being on earth. Knowing that there is a God. Salvation, on the other hand, is an act of grace. For by grace you have been saved. For by grace, the free gifts of God, not your own doing, not anything that you have accomplished. That's what he says right there in the text. He says, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. So that no one may boast. It is not a result of works. It is nothing that you have done. If the text is trying to do anything, it's trying to make clear you don't do this. God does. By faith. By grace, rather, through faith. Faith is the instrument. And faith in Christ saves completely. Because it's a full gift of God. It's not a faith and I just want things to get better. It's not a faith in that I don't like where things are at and I want to be optimistic about the future. It is a complete dependence upon God, which can only be granted by the grace of God. Faith is not something you have done. It is something delivered to you. And praise God 
Because in our greatest moments of weakness, when we feel like that man and we say, I believe, help my unbelief, what are we doing? We're returning to the exact state in which we were saved. I can't do this without you. I, I can do nothing without you. I'm completely dependent upon you. That faith in which he has given, we plead for God be gracious and faithful to give more. He gives salvific faith. Faith defined, not just delivered, but what is faith? Look at Hebrews 1, or rather Hebrews 11, 1. It says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It is the conviction of things not seen. Assurance is a full confidence in the substance of something that you hope to be true, right? So he defines what is faith? What is belief and dependence? Well, it is a assurance or a full confidence in something that you have a hope for that it will be true. Praise God, biblical hope is not like earthly hope. You might put your faith in lots of things and have an assurance. You're confident. I watched a video with the kids yesterday about people who are definitely confident that there is no God and that we all came from monkeys. Well, fish. Well, bacteria, which turned into fish and then into late greater species of monkeys and then us over millions of years. And they're resting their faith in that fully. No ability to see that happen. No ability to know that. But they grab a book written by people that states for them what has come about. And they believe. They have a faith. They have faith in textbooks. Faith in scientists. Faith in themselves. And they live by faith. They live assured that their hope is right. But we have a hope that is secure. A hope that is declared. A hope that is defined by the resurrection of Christ. That we will not die. That we will rise again with him. That our hope is in him. That sin and Satan have been defeated. And that he will pay. Or rather he has paid. And sin will be paid for. It is not just an assurance of wishful thinking. It is a hope in God. Defined and declared through the resurrection of Christ. It is the conviction of things not seen. Much in the same vein, but it is that proof which gives evidence to something that's not visible. Right? The conviction, like you were convicted of a crime. It is the conviction or the proof, the evidence of something that's not visible. And so how do you have this faith? Again, it is delivered. It is a gift to you. What is faith? It's the same as it is for all people. Faith is belief, assurance, trust, dependence. But our faith is set in something that is Christ. Something where there is true hope, true dependence. And that faith, that kind of faith, is given by the grace of God. And salvific faith is always faith that results in prolific fruit. Salvific faith is always faith that results in prolific fruit. Faith that saves is faith that transforms. It's faith that changes. Faith that makes us into what we once weren't. 
See, the joy and the grace of God and that he has saved you by grace alone through the instrument of faith, giving your heart dependence, regeneration to depend on his spirit. You are also not just saved, but you are progressing in faith, independence and trust on him. Salvific faith is a complete work of God. Nothing you have done. It has completely transformed your heart. But ongoing sanctification, ongoing hope in Christ is now that your heart has been made alive. The Spirit of God dwells in you to transform that heart more and more into the hope of Christ. Not by your own doing, but because He owns you. You're His, and He will bear fruit. Look with me at faith that depends and deepens, Philippians 3, 7 through 16. Paul, in speaking of his own life, he's speaking of works his accomplishments, his status as a Jew, right? So in ancient times, saying, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. I was circumcised on the eighth day. Like, I must be saved, would be his arguments. I'm a Jew of Jews, a Pharisee. I studied the law. This would be equivalent in our own context for someone to grow up here and say, I was homeschooled my whole life. I never stepped foot in Satan's school. My parents taught me every argument against evolution from the time I was seven years old. I know Bible verses up and down. I read my Bible in Greek. That's amazing. And it doesn't earn salvation. That's Paul's point. He's trying to say, I am the quintessential what a Jew should be. And what does he say? Whatever gain I had, whatever acclaim from men, whatever I thought was earning it for me, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. I count it not as what I've earned, but as my debt. Indeed, I count everything as loss for the surpassing worth of Christ, knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish. Probably a stronger Greek word that you, many of you, would be very offended of if I used it in our context today. Uh, but it would be fecal matter. I'll just use that one because your kids don't know that and won't repeat it. All the other ones we're scared of, even though we all do it. It's kind of weird. So Paul says very clearly the value of that. This rubbish is kaka. He says, I count it all as fecal. Why? In order that I may gain Christ. I count nothing of my life, none of my work, none of my merits, none of my good things, none of my bad things as anything. I count them all as trash because I want to live for Christ, because I must fully depend on him. He says in verse 9, And that I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ Jesus, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and know of his salvation, know of the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in death. Verse 11, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained it or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Why? Why does Paul press on to make this his own, the resurrection? Why does Paul press on to be lifted in Christ? 
Why does Paul press on? Because I want to make sure I do enough when I get there. Because I was once a bad guy and I need to get back to church. Because I'm convinced that I have to live a holy life. Because I want to be righteous. Why does Paul press on to make it his own? Look at verse 12. But I press on to make it my own because Christ has made me his own. Because it's who I am. I am owned by him. My faith is a gift from him. I depend completely upon him. Verse 13, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think in this way. And if any of you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. What have we attained? Freedom from sin in Christ. We are his own. He completely owns us. So we press on to make it our own. Were I to have time, I would take you into the book of James uh, that clearly teaches about prayer. Because many take this, and I just want you to have this and be able to look at these passages this week. If you're wrestling with that, that Jesus says this kind can only be taken out by prayer. And you have heard people teach about prayer. And if you pray and if you have faith, you will get what you want. I want you to recognize in these passages what Jesus calls, through the hand of James, the double-minded man. See, it's, it's not just that he is doubting. It's not just that he doubts. It's that he is double-minded in that he loves the world. He is tossed to and fro between the world and the things of God. It is that he is praying for his passions to be accomplished, not God's purpose. He is longing for things to be given to him, not because he is Christ's. He longs for Christ to be glorified. He says the prayer of faith is answered. Why? Because the prayer of faith has faith in God, not faith in what it wants. Your prayers will not only be answered as your hope is in Christ, your prayers will be purified as your hope is in Christ. He will give you clarity to where your hope should be because you, like Paul, live in a faith that depends but also deepens because he owns you. You are not your own. You long for him. And he will purify all of your life. He will clarify all of your life. As you live like that man in faith, pleading with him to help your lack of faith, he will faithfully do so. But in those moments, you are not like that man. You've heard and know and understand the truth of God. You don't have to live confused and frustrated like that man. You might cry out like him, Help my unbelief. But he has been clear to you. He has made clear that a faithless generation needs to depend on him. Depend on him. Don't live for the highs. Don't drown in the lows. Live to be owned by Christ. Because if your hope is in Christ, you are. He owns you. Depend upon him.